you guys out to our house on Friday night for all of those who were able to come out. We had a great fall get together and had about, Mark and I were talking about about 30 to 40 people we'd say, so it was a great turnout, but we missed those of you who weren't able to make it, and, uh, but we will be doing something like that hopefully soon. Um, try to do something like that once a month, and uh, my goodness, Christmas is coming up, can you believe that? And, don't even think about that, but we'll be having our uh, Christmas party hopefully uh, not too long, so looking forward to, uh, to that as well. So John chapter 4, you can see in your outline we've entitled this whole story, the story about the woman at the well, Jesus' mission for the Father's worship and the salvation of the world. That's sort of how I think we can summarize this whole story. We said chapter 4 really summarizes John's message for us, what he's been after this whole, whole book. Jesus is on mission. He's pressing forward. He's pressing forward to the cross. Every step of the way, he's, he's on the way to the cross. It's very clear from the beginning of this gospel. Um, he's pressing forward for the Father's purposes, to seek out the sheep the Father's given him. He's, he's pressing forward for the Father's worship. Everything he's doing is intentional. We learn back in verses 1 to 6 that his mission is driving every action. He's intentionally going to Samaria. Um, he's intentionally going to seek this woman out. He's, he's intentional. Then verses 7 to 15, we find out that he's come to provide living water for thirsty sinners. Um, he's not just intentional in his actions. He's intentional in what he's came to accomplish. He's come to provide living water. And we said last week what, what that means. Uh, what is living water? We said that is pretty much synonymous with what he's been talking about the whole time. The new birth, salvation, eternal life, cleansing from sin, and the Holy Spirit in your, in your life. She is thirsty. This woman is thirsty. We're going to see a little bit more of that this morning. We said what does that mean to be thirsty? We said it doesn't mean less than having longings and, and spiritual desires and, and, and longing for true satisfaction. It's not less than that. It's just more than that. To be spiritually thirsty means to have a lack of spiritual life. You are spiritually parched. You're spiritually dry. You're without fruitfulness and life towards God. You're thirsty. And obviously it, that has implications on satisfaction. The greatest satisfaction in life is having a relationship with your creator. She doesn't have that. She's dry, parched, thirsty, without life. And Jesus has come to offer her just that. Um, but the question now is Jesus offers the new birth, offers living water, offers spiritual life to thirsty sinners. But to what ends? What is the goal of salvation. What is the goal of the new birth, the living water that Jesus is offering this woman and that he is offering to every one of us? Is it just so that we can escape God's wrath? Is it just so we can live a better life than before? Is it just so we can go to heaven when we die? Um, all those things are obviously true. That is not the ultimate ends of salvation. But what is? The answer is worship. Worship is the goal. The goal of Christ's cross work, the ends of our salvation, the ends of eternal life, 
is the worship of the Father. That's where it's all going. That's where it's all moving. That's what we're going to see this morning. If you remember a few weeks back, we said that God has been on mission since the creation of the world to dwell with the holy people in unhindered fellowship. That's what the purpose of Eden was, and that's what the purpose of salvation history is, to restore his relationship, God with man, in an unhindered relationship of fellowship and worship. That's what it's about. And that's what Christ has come to accomplish. God's desire has always been his glory as he dwells with a worshiping people from every nation, tribe, and language. Everything he's done is for that end. In other words, you've been saved for worship. That's a gift to you. That's the gift of salvation. That's the ultimate gift of salvation is enabling you to worship the Father. And that's the ultimate duty of salvation. That's what you're saved unto is the worship of God the Father. So you can say it like this. The goal of everything, the goal of redemption is that you would be part of a worshiping community who worships the Father centered around the Son through a heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian. That's what John is going to tell us. So this morning, we're going to be in verses 16 through 26 and learn how Jesus' mission entirely transforms worship. Jesus' mission entirely transforms worship. That's the point. That's the, the purpose of it. One of the evidences that this woman is spiritually thirsty and spiritually needy, spiritually parched, is that she has just totally inability to grasp the significance of Christ's words. He's talking to her on a spiritual level, and she always responds just superficially. She can't get off the surface level of what's going on. Back in verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water. She's still thinking it's, it's some kind of water. Water Is it a magical water? What is this thing? I don't know, but I don't care. As long as I don't have to come back here to this well to draw water. She totally mistakes what Jesus is talking about. Only hears about some kind of water, and she thinks it will be great because now she doesn't have to come back to this well, which she loathes coming to in the first place. Because she has to come back out and be a public spectacle. And everyone looks at her, knows about her life of shame and sin. Doesn't want to keep coming here. Great, give me something so I don't have to expose my shame. But look what Jesus says in verses 16 to 18. Jesus exposes sin to prepare sinners for what he offers. In verse 16, he says, Go, call your husband, and come here. Notice verse 15 ended. She says, so I don't have to come here. And Jesus said, go, call your husband and come here. Come to this place you just said that you would like to never return to. Bring your husband with you. Come here. We're coming to this well not bad enough. Certainly bringing her man along with her would only heighten her exposure. And Jesus knows this. He says, call your husband, come here in order to expose her life, expose her sin in order that she would understand the kind of water he's talking about. She's concerned to have a water that will keep her from being exposed. Jesus is concerned about exposing her 
so she will have the water that he's come to offer. It's so gracious of him. And it's the same with every one of us. Um, we will not grasp or even care about what Christ offers us until we are exposed, until we realize just how thirsty we are, until we know the depths of our guilt and the deadness of our heart apart from him. And even after salvation, I assume I'm preaching to believers this morning, we are still in need of having our hearts regularly exposed, our sin regularly exposed. It's painful. It's not fun. Um, but we need it. It's one of his greatest graces to us to keep us dependent on him, to keep us sucking and sucking and sucking from the vine of his grace. We need to be exposed. Just note the love of Jesus here. He doesn't expose her out of anger. I can just see his face. He's not angry with her. He's longing for her. He loves her. He's serious. But he does it in order to bring her to the water. So don't resist God's grace to you when he comes to expose your sin, whether through a preached word, through a person, through your spouse, through life circumstances. It is love. The worst form of judgment is let God let you continue merrily along without repenting and without clinging to Christ. Note also how he deals with her here. He doesn't deal with mere generalities. He doesn't just say, you're a sinner, you're a bad person, we all do bad things. He goes after specifics. Specific instances of sin in her heart. And one of the most loving things that we can do in our relationships with others is to poke and to prod into specific sins, sin patterns, life areas in one another's hearts. That's not comfortable to be the giver of that either. It's not fun. But man, it's loving. Take sin patterns that you observe and press them on the consciences of those whom you talk with, those whom you're working with. Use their sinful actions as windows into their souls. Help them to see it, what's going on. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's taking her, her life as a window into her soul to show her what is really there so that she will come to know him. It is very, very loving. Well, look at how she responds in verse 17. She dodges the bullet again, or at least she tries to. Woman answered, I, I have no husband. <laughs> um, this is the chapter 3, verse 20 reaction. Flip over there. You know this. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works be exposed. That's what all sinners do. Do anything to dodge the bullet. Anything to get out of the piercing rays of the all-knowing Christ who comes to them. It's crazy. It's illogical. Sin is illogical. It will do anything it can to hold on to its guilt and shame and condemnation rather than humbly confessing, repenting, and receiving the life that Christ offers. It's illogical. And that's what we do. That's what she's trying to do. But look how Jesus is just so gracious, how he keeps pressing in, verses 17 to 18. He says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. <laughs> um, she is true. It is true at, at, at one level. She doesn't have a husband. 
But Jesus uses her words now against her. She's had five husbands. We're not given any more details than this. We don't know why. Um, but we can infer that after five failed marriages, um, she bears a lot of responsibility. She's either a morally wanton woman that hops from relationship to relationship, or she has some significant character flaws that's caused husband after husband to divorce her. And on top of all that, she's living with her boyfriend. The man that she has no covenant relationship with, she's a fornicator, an adulteress, a great sinner. After this many failed relationships, she has to be incredibly thirsty. Without God, without hope. So Jesus here is just so gracious. He goes and he cuts, he pierces into her heart. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You might be thinking, well, well, I don't have the ability of Jesus. I can't do that. The point is, Jesus has gone to heaven so he could send his spirit. That's what this job of the spirit is, to do this work, to do this cutting and this piercing work that Christ is doing here in your hearts and in the hearts of those that you share Christ with. So Jesus has just cut her. He's just gone to the, to the heart, exposed her um, in love so that she would come to, to him. Well, now, all of that sets us up for the rest of the passage on this discussion of worship, verses 19 to 24. Jesus explains the radical truth of new covenant worship. As soon as Jesus reveals that he has this comprehensive insight into her life, look at how she responds in verses 19 to 20 with a short-sighted question. She says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She responds by pointing out that he must be a prophet to have this kind of comprehensive knowledge and insight into her life. A prophet was somebody sent by God with a message from God. Um, and Jesus is certainly that. He's more than that, which she's about to find out. Um, but he's certainly that. And since he's a prophet, she requests him to settle the worship debate. Uh, we talked last week that the Samaritans, one of the main points of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans, was that they had established Mount Gerizim as the center for their worship. Jacob's Well, if you look, go on Google Earth, it's really fun. You can find Jacob's Well. Mount Gerizim is right there. Like, they're, they're seeing it. She's probably looking right up at it as they're talking. Um, it's where they established the center of their worship. A temple was constructed on there at one point, um, and worship was continuing there. Um... And it's this primary point of contention that she brings up. She says, you're a prophet. Now, now where should we worship? Um, and it might seem random to you. Why does she go here? Why, why bring this up? Um, and there's a couple of options. Yes? Uh, Michael, it seems to me this is such a typical response yeah. to people who are confronted with their sin. It's good. Then which, you go to that church. I go to this. Mm -hmm. when, when you're confronted with... with their heart issue. Yep. Then, then they turn it to the, well, you go to that church, I yep. go to this, which is really the right church mm -hmm. to go to. This is such a typical Superficial response. response, yep. And so she's still on that surface level, like we've been seeing. And uh, 
I say the difference is that there was a correct answer to that. Um, Jerusalem was the correct one, but it's not going to be for long. That's what the point is. Um, so there's a couple options. And the, the first option, why she goes here, is what Mr. Reimer is saying is in order to divert the conversation. Get the focus off of me. Get the light off of me as soon as possible. Okay, you're a prophet. So let's talk about uh, th th this worship issue. Uh, let's discuss that for a while. It's possible. Um, it's also possible that she brings this up because it's the central issue at hand. If Jesus is a prophet, then whatever his message is, whatever this living water stuff is that he's talking about, then the worship issue is central. If she's going to accept the words of a Jewish prophet, then that's going to have implications on how she worships because he represents a system of worship in Jerusalem, which she doesn't agree with. By implication, she would be aligning herself with his definition of worship. And the irony is that she's correct. The worship issue is central. Jesus has come to deal with the worship issue. Receiving Jesus' words has massive implications on how you worship. That is true. She, though, is ready for a debate. <laughs> she's ready for a discussion to hear some of Jesus' arguments for Jerusalem. And she has her arguments in her arsenal ready for Samaritan worship. But in verses 21 to 24, he gives a jaw-dropping answer. An astonishing answer. It's not what she was expecting. And there's three parts to this answer, and this really is the, uh, the mountaintop, if you will, of the, uh, of the discussion. The first part is in verse 21, the relocation of true worship. Look what Jesus says. She said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is saying the time is coming in which the correct geographical location for worship will be absolutely irrelevant. True worship will not be determined by geography. He's saying, while there is a right and wrong answer to that question, verse 22, we're going to get to that. The hour is coming, which will make the answer to that question irrelevant. That is not where we need to be focused on right now. Because of Christ, proper worship is no longer controlled by geography or determined by a building. There are no holy sites in Christianity. We're coming up to celebrate the Reformation in a couple weeks. Thank God for the Reformation and all the Catholic lies that were involved here. You don't go anywhere now to get a better access to God. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. You don't need to go to Rome. You don't need to go anywhere on the earth to have a better access to God. No Jew talked like that. <laughs> she had to have been absolutely astonished. Um, but why, the question is, why? Jesus says it will be affected by the coming hour. He says an hour is coming. This is the second time Jesus refers to an hour. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to his mother, his hour has not yet come. And through the Gospel of John, we repeatedly hear about this hour, the hour, the hour of Christ. What is the hour? What does he mean? An hour refers to a short period of time 
in which there will be massive eternal consequences. It is a pivot point in salvation history. It will be a short duration of time, but the consequences will be eternal. It refers to his death, resurrection, and exaltation. That's the hour which will transform worship. We go to a number of passages. Flip over with me to John 12 really quick. John 12, verse 23. Makes it explicit. John 12, 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, how will he be glorified? Well, he gives the illustration. It's as he will die, like a grain of wheat, and thus produce much fruit. Look down at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's in turmoil because of this hour. But for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. Jesus come for this hour, and it will be this hour that will decisively transform worship forever. In other words, through Christ's cross work, worship will be eternally transformed. And she doesn't get the full significance of this. She couldn't. Um, but John wrote this gospel for us. John wrote this gospel for us who have the whole story so that we would understand what Jesus is saying here. In other words, with the coming of Christ, with his death and resurrection, worship cannot remain unaltered. So significant is what Christ came to accomplish that worship must be transformed. It cannot continue to be localized in Jerusalem because of something Jesus came to do. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in verse 24. But first, I want to look at what he, else he says here in this verse. It tells her that this worship will be directed to the Father. You will worship the Father. Why doesn't he say God? Why doesn't he say, no longer in Jerusalem or Samaria you will worship God? He says the Father. Why? Well, I think there's three reasons. And uh, I was helped by John Piper on these three reasons, just reviewing some things he said. First reason is because of her reliance on the fathers. Remember, she said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Our father Jacob gave us this well. She, she, she loves the fathers. She's into tradition, lineage, worthless things. Jesus is concerned with the father. That's where she should be concerned about. Number two, because father implies that he has children. Who worships God? Who worships the father? It is children. Only those who worship the Father are children of the Father. Well, who, are, who, who are they? Chapter 1, verse 12. To as many as received him, to who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, what? Children of God. That's the only people who worship God. Believers in Jesus. Number three. Why does he talk about the Father? It's because he is the Son sent by the Father to bring people to the Father. John 14, 6. No man comes to the Father but by me. The only way you get access to the Father 
is by recognizing Jesus as Son. All through the Gospel of John, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father, 5.23. If you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father, 14.7. If you don't love and obey the Son, you don't love and obey the Father, 14.24. From the coming of Christ on, any and all true worship must be directed to the Father through Christ. That's why he brings up the Father here, to point all to himself, the Son, the access point to the Father. And this has massive implications on how we witness. This is an absolutely scandalous thing to say. It was scandalous at that time, and it's scandalous in our day and age. Jesus said this very thing to the Jews, and they went crazy. They were ready to kill him. What do you mean we don't know the Father? Of course we do. Jesus said, no, you're of your father, the devil, to the Jews. <laughs> And same in our time of day, especially as the tides of postmodernism continue to swell, where not only is there no absolute truth, but everyone has their own access to absolute truth, which cannot be questioned. And here comes Christians with absolute truth that everyone must submit to. The world doesn't care if you want your Jesus. That's not the issue. The Romans didn't care that Christians worshipped Jesus until they refused worship to the emperor. It's the Christian message which confronts everyone with the exclusivity of Christ and the exclusive access to him while the world hates us. If you do not worship God through Christ, you do not worship God. You worship something, but it is not God. Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, secular person. And Jesus said this is the way it's going to be. Um, we're seeing it in our, in our time. The world will hate you. It's supposed to do that because it hates Christ, because it hates the Father. That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, let's move on to the second part of his reply in verse 22. Look what he says. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus gives the essentials for true worship. And he adds an important clarification here. It's not as though the location has always been unimportant. It hasn't. It's been very important. Before the coming of Christ, if you wanted to worship God, you had to do it in Jerusalem, or else it wasn't worship of God. But Jesus is saying that now it is going to change. But why? Why was Jerusalem so important? What are these essentials? The first is that worship requires revelation. He told the woman that the Samaritan worships what they do not know. That is, it's empty. It's false worship. It's not connected with revelation. They are worshiping apart from the revelation of God. The Samaritans accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they rejected the Davidic Covenant, the prophets, the writings, everything else in the Old Testament canon. And obviously that has implications on their worship. They did not worship God according to the revelation that he had given. It's empty. It's not informed by worship. You may not worship God however you want. It's the problem with so much of the strange fire that we see in evangelicalism. 
You don't just come to God the way you want. It must be in accordance with revelation. John Calvin said, We are not to essay anything in religion, rationally or unthinkingly. For unless there is knowledge present, it is not God that we worship, but a specter or ghost. Hence, all so-called good intentions are struck by this thunderbolt, which tells us that men can do nothing but err when they are guided by their own opinion without the word and command of God. You don't worship God however you want. and do it in accord with his word. And the Samaritans had rejected much of his revelation, and so it was empty, worthless, nothing. They worshiped what they did not know. But there's another essential ingredient. It requires a savior. Look what else Jesus says. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. Now, what's that logic? We worship what we know. Why? Because salvation is from the Jews. Because salvation is coming from the Jews, therefore the Jews worship what they know. What does that, what does that mean? It's literally... Thus salvation comes from the Jews. The Jews were God's appointed means of salvation. From the Jews would come the Messiah. The reason the Jews were given the ordinances, the worship, everything, was in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And the reverse of that is the truth as well. The only ones that can worship are those who have experienced the salvation of God. That's what Jesus come to be the savior of the world, to inaugurate worship. Well, that sets us up perfectly for the next two verses, verse 23 to 24, the essence now of true worship. It's on the back of your page. The essence of true worship. In these verses, Jesus now makes explicit what he is implying in verse 21. And if we've been climbing the mountain, we're at the peak now. This is it. And he first gives us, in verse, um, next verse here, verse 23, the decisive factors in New Covenant worship. He repeats what he said in 21, but he adds a little bit. He says, an hour is coming, and now is. The temple had two primary functions. Think of this way, think temple. The temple did two things. It was the place of revelation, the place of God's presence, and it was the place of purification. It was a place where sacrifice was offered. It's the access point to God, and it's the place where your sins were dealt with. Two things. And Jesus says that in his coming, both of those things are provided. Worship is transformed because of Christ's cross and because of Christ's incarnation. He says the hour is coming in my cross where I deal with sin. But it's already here. Why is it already here? Because the person of Christ is here. Jesus said back in chapter 2 that he is the new temple. He is the new access point between God and man. He said, destroy this temple. In three days I'll raise it again. He is the presence of God in the new, final way between God and man. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the decisive factor in new covenant worship. But then he gives us the decisive requirements for new covenant worship. Look at this. Worship will no longer be dependent on location as a primary requirement, but two things. Spirit and truth. It's going to be transformed from place 
to manor. No longer in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. No longer in place, but in, in means and way you do it. So what does spirit mean here? Well, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled on this question. What does he mean? In spirit. Does it mean the human spirit? Or does it mean the Holy Spirit? We worship God in spirit. What does that mean? Well, the next verse, verse 24, gives us a clue. We worship in spirit because God is spirit, Jesus says. Well, that obviously doesn't mean that God is the Holy Spirit. We're going to unpack what that means in a minute. It refers to God's spiritual nature. So I think this is talking about our spiritual nature, the human spirit, the human soul. We worship in spirit. But the problem is, is that our souls are dead, right? That's what we've been talking about. That's the problem with this woman. She can't worship in spirit because she's dead. That's why she needs the new birth. So look back at chapter 3, verse 6. I think this verse knocks it out of the park, what he means. Chapter 3, verse 6. What does he mean by worship in spirit? Chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit, of the Holy Spirit, is spirit. What does that mean? You're born of the Holy Spirit. You're born again. You're spirit. It means you have spiritual life. There is new life in you. Totally different than a life of flesh. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? It means to worship God from hearts that have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. In Christ. So what about in truth? What does that mean? So you must worship in spirit. You must be born again. You must have spiritual life to worship God aright in the new covenant. And you worship God in truth. Truth always refers to the revelation of God, right? Verse 22. The Jews worshiped right because they had the revelation of God. But the point here is that God's final revelation has arrived in the person of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. If you want to worship right, Jesus says, you must worship in spirit, the new birth, the Holy Spirit transform your life, and in truth, that is in Christ. New covenant worship. What makes new covenant worship so new? It's not centered in a location. It is centered on Jesus Christ. That is the point. In truth, it's worship centered around depending on, focusing on, lifting up Jesus Christ. That is the newness of new covenants. Worship. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But before concluding his answer, Jesus adds the decisive reasons for new covenant worship. Look what he says. Verse 23, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's passionately pursuing. That's what God's about. From the beginning of creation, that's what he's about. Pursuing worshipers. I'm just thinking about sort of what Mark was saying. We're in this election time, and my goodness, it's so easy to get bogged down. And there's important things. We need to know what's going on in our world. Guys, this is what it's about. This is what our lives are about. This is what history is about. This is what everything is pressing onto is the worship of God. God is pursuing this intentionally. He's after these kind of worshipers in spirit and truth, centered around his son. How's he pursued these? How's he seeking these? 
He's done it in the greatest, costliest way possible. John 3.16. He sent his son. He's after worshipers, and he's done everything that's needed to accomplish it. The other reason is that God is spirit. Verse 24. God is spirit. That's why those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? He's spirit. There's three things in your outline. Really quick. He's not physical. He's spiritual primarily in nature. And therefore, worship which he desires primarily deals with spiritual realities. Over and over he says, I'm not served by human hands as though I needed anything. What are you going to bring me that I need, he says. That's not what he wants. Tim preached Psalm 51 a few weeks ago. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. His spirit means he's outside of the realm of human experience. You only access what God wants in worship through his revelation to you. And his spirit means he's all present. He's unable to be confined to any one location, to Jerusalem or anywhere else. And so worship can be experienced universally in connection with his son. That is what God is about. And it's been accomplished in Christ. And if you're a believer, that's why you're a believer. And that's what your life is to be about. So we got three minutes. So before we wrap up, look at how it ends. In verses 25 to 26, Jesus now exclaims his identity. I don't know how much she grasps at this point, but she's never heard anything like this before. He's certainly a prophet, and this makes her think of the Samaritan expectation of a Messiah. Verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He's called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Samaritans didn't expect a Davidic Messiah, but they expected one like Moses promised. Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like myself, God will raise up, and he will tell you all things. The Samaritans expected a prophet to come who would be the decisive word on God's worship, who would restore God's worship as it ought to be and settle these disputes. And she says, I don't know about you, you're a prophet, but we're expecting the prophet to come, the Messiah. Look what Jesus says in verse 26. <laughs> Literally, he says, the one speaking with you, I am. That's the first of his I am statements in John. I am. It's the first time he clearly identifies with the Messiah in the gospel. He doesn't do it in Jewish territory, so they wouldn't get these wrong expectations of a military conqueror. But he does it with the Samaritans. He is the Messiah. And as such, look at the very end, verse 42, where this all ends. The Samaritans conclude, we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. So Jesus come. Not for Jews only, but Samaritans and Gentiles, and not the cleaned up kinds like Nicodemus, but for the sinners like this woman and like you and me. He's so gracious, he's so good, and it's all for the worship of the Father. So, I want to leave you with the question Are you worshiping? Are you worshiping? Is your life centered around the worship of Christ? Is your life centered around the confession of sin and the clinging to Christ and repentance and in faith and doing everything for his exaltation? 
and the glory of the Father, and his worship, and his name, through bearing fruit, through obedience, through holy living. That's what we're about. And, uh, next week, my desire is to put the pause on the Gospel of John. And I just want to come and talk about worship, just the topic. Big sermon, and we'll have more of a discussion. I'll try not to only be the one talking, and just talk. What is worship? What does that mean when we talk about worship? How do we think about worship as a big picture? And then practical applications for our lives. What do we mean we're to be about worship? What does that look like? What does that look like, especially for Christians? Um, so be thinking about that. Go and uh, pull out a concordance and look up the word uh, worship and come back ready with something to discuss. Um, but I am looking forward to it. Jesus is awesome and this is what life is about. We're out of time. Is there any questions, comments, Snyder marks? <laughs> This is a incredible, incredible passage. Um, so be, be chewing on it, be meditating on it. And, uh, let's uh, go and uh, soak up the word in the hour to come. Let me pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, with hearts transformed by your Spirit, thanking you, praising you. You're worthy of all our lives and worship. Prepare us for the hour to come as we gather corporately for worship. May you be honored. May Christ be exalted and may we continue to be transformed by the Holy Spirit you've given to us as we live by faith. Love you. Praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.